The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Catherine Miller. She is the author of the book that we'll be discussing today. It's titled At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. Ms. Miller has a strong resume for advocacy work. She was the founding executive director of the Chef Action Network, which is a chef advocacy group. And she spent several years at the James Beard Foundation as vice president of Impact, working with leaders in the food system to create new and innovative programs to help address gender equity, sustainability, food waste, and child nutrition. It was there she developed the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change, where chefs learn to effectively use their skills for advocacy and why they are uniquely positioned to drive food system change, making it more sustainable and just. In 2020, Ms. Miller hosted a seminar series titled What's for Dinner? The Evolution of Food Policy and Advocacy as part of her fellowship in politics and policy at American University in Washington, D.C., Food and Wine and Fortune magazines chose her as one of the most innovative women in the food and beverage space. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted. I really enjoyed reviewing your book, and I want to start on page 10, and I want to bring forth a quote from Chef Andrea Rusing. She is known for her restaurant Lantern in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You say she said it best, and indeed, I think she did. She said, I was an activist before I was a chef, and my decision to cook was as much about politics and making change as it was food. That really sums it up, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, Andrea and all the other chefs who work on policy and advocacy and changing the way we eat in their restaurants and changing the model of our communities and even working on public policy are really activists at heart. And the plate is where they put it all out on the line and and help us imagine something even more delicious. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, though, about you first, before we dive into the book, how did you become involved with and interested in food system reform? It's such a great question. I feel like I am like a lot of people that for many years of my life just thought about food as almost fuel and thought about restaurants as my own sort of private living room, the place where I celebrated birthdays or signed mortgage papers and did those sorts of things. And so I didn't really give a lot of thought to the food system. That changed over time as I saw certain things happening in the world, whether it was the fight against pesticides or antibiotic reform, sort of in the periphery. But then I was asked to create the curriculum for the first James Beard Chef Boot Camp. And the penny sort of dropped for me, listening to 15 award-winning, thought-provoking, interesting chefs from all different backgrounds and all different types of cuisines talk about the way that they intersect with producers and suppliers, the way they present things to their customers, the way they run their businesses. I was like, oh, wow. It really illuminated that restaurants were part of a greater food system and the food system also touches every aspect of our lives. It's the thing that we all do every day. If you 
don't have enough food, it can kill you. If you have too much food, it can kill you. And it's also an incredibly political decision that often we make passively. The businesses that we might support because we're having a busy day or the places that we choose to celebrate those milestones, those are all very personal, political and financial decisions that we make. And so I now love the food system in a way that is probably deeper than most. And it's something that I think about, honestly, all the, every day, all day. But when I first started this work, it just really hadn't occurred to me. I didn't have the knowledge or the relationships or really even the awareness of how the food system interacts with everything and then how restaurants play into that. Yeah. Well, welcome to the club. I think about food all the time too. I'm interested, however, in your trajectory. So you've got a degree in English from Loyola University of New Orleans. How was it that you became invited to work with the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change? Yeah, no, I graduated with the oh-so-useful degree of creative writing and poetry with a minor in political science from college. So my parents were very concerned about my future from an employment perspective. But my career really happened in thirds. I took that degree first into working for the Los Angeles Times as a staff writer and researcher, and that introduced me to the amazing world of politics. And I worked on political campaigns and in political infrastructures for well over a decade And then that's a young person's business. And when I got sort of burnt out in that work, I transferred those skills to the world of building campaigns for socially responsible companies and nonprofit organizations. And I spent four years inside an organization called the United Nations Foundation, which is a global charity and enterprise and built a number of lasting campaigns for them and then decided to go out and be a consultant. I sort of was tired of working for other people and really wanted to work for myself in a way that was fulfilling and enriching. And so I spent the next third of my career building a consulting practice. And a large part of that was training advocates around the world. So, you know, I traveled to China and Lebanon and Mali and Nigeria and Australia and all over the world, really helping people better understand how they could use their voice to help push for change in their communities and on some really big topics. And so through that work, I was introduced to a trustee of the James Beard Foundation, and they were sort of imagining this world where they were living this world, not even imagining this world where chefs were on TV, had become social media influencers, were traveling the world, and yet weren't necessarily seen as being part of the food system advocacy and weren't using their voice in a productive way. And so they had decided that they wanted to try something and um, they reached out to me because of reputation and connection. And so that really changed the trajectory of my life in 2012. Well, I think this book is really unique and it highlights pieces of our food system that we don't typically read about or talk about comfortably. So I'm going to be jumping around the book. Sure. Okay, great. So on page 156, you talk about undocumented immigrants. Yeah. And, you know, it only took me an opportunity to see undocumented immigrants or assumed undocumented immigrants working in fields in California and Florida to really understand the back breaking level of work that is behind that bunch of celery or those tomatoes that we take for granted in our supermarket and in our restaurants. But I was so grateful that you brought this issue to the page. And there is so much hateful political rhetoric against this group of human beings. And yet, as you explain, millions of undocumented immigrants are the backbone of our food system. 
How do we change our understanding of the value of these workers? Yeah, I mean, those workers sort of sit at a bigger question around understanding the val- the true value of our food system. But I think this is a traditional immigrant story that as communities become more affluent and people get different jobs, there are things that they don't want to do. And other people see opportunities in a country or an enterprise. And so they come and they work and they pay taxes and they pay rents and they put their kids into schools and they become a fabric of the community without any of the protections afforded to them by citizens. And there's a certain segment of our society that demonizes those people. And there's a certain segment of society that wants to restrict their entrance or their ability to grow within this country. And I like to say that unless you're a a member of a First Nation of the United States, one of the original tribal communities, you're an immigrant too. Your whole family's based in it. And so there are, again, unless you're a member of a First Nation, your family came here or was forcibly brought here. And so it is important for us to remember that part of our own individual heritage. And it's also important to see how the chef community really, for me, it was really important to see how the chef community responded to the challenges, particularly after 2016 and the election, when the rhetoric really started to overtake us in a way. And so, you know, I look at Jose Andres as mentioned in the book as being a champion for a movement called Without Immigrants for a Day in the Restaurant and Food Systems Workers. But I really applaud the work of Christina Martinez. She's a chef from Philadelphia. She's a James Beard Award winner for South Philly Barbacoa and her business partner really pushed the policy side of this and forced people to pay attention to the contributions that immigrants make in our food system, whether it's in the fields, the producing facilities, or whether it's in the restaurants. And that's what it's going to take. Business leaders, community leaders, standing up for people, helping make their contributions more visible. Yeah. Well, I had a friend at the University of Missouri who was in rural sociology. This was decades ago, Jose Garcia. And he said something to me that I will never forget. He said, it's almost like we have a sign at the border that says both keep out and help wanted. And I love your mention of the fact that try to imagine your day without the work of an immigrant workforce. So these are complicated issues. And it's one of the reasons why our food is kept so quote unquote cheap. But as you have beautifully explored the true cost of food, I think it's high time that we talk about these things. I'm also grateful that you brought forth something that I hadn't thought about. You mentioned that in 2021, the Federal Bureau of Investigation ranked restaurants as the eighth most common location for violent crime, and yet the National Restaurant Association did not want to endorse or support legislation that would require background checks on all gun purchases. That seems to be inconsistent with what would be best for restaurants. Yeah, well, I have a lot to say about the Restaurant Association's inconsistency about doing the things that are best for restaurants and restaurant workers (laughs) and helping curb violence or at least access to guns and violence is certainly one of those. You know, our field of public policy is very much controlled by lobbying interests. Um, Many of those lobbying interests are contributed to or supported by larger scale establishments where they want to keep the cost of doing business lower. And they want to make sure the businesses are accessible um, in every definition of that word to the most people. And so taking on 
what are now controversial issues, keeping our citizens safe or protecting immigrants or supporting a rising minimum wage, all of those things are seen as much more controversial in the context of public policy, more so than they were even 15, 20 years ago. And so the National Restaurant Association prior to 2020 was the only organization that was lobbying on behalf of the restaurant community But that organization is largely funded and controlled by large-scale chains, and those chains operate all over the country and all over the world. And so they feel like their public policy stances have to be not as controversial or they need to be more narrow. And for me, that one is a good lesson in our power of voice and our power of what we can do. So Cal Dooley, who's a chef out of Boston, who after the Pulse shootings and other aspects just couldn't, couldn't take it anymore. And so he and a group of other chefs around the country independently, not as a group of folks, but independently one by one, you started to see chefs who put a sign on their door that said, please no handguns in our restaurant or raised money for every town or mothers for gun safety. And that is a risky in this environment right now is risky, but it's really heartening to see everyday citizens and business owners step up and take that responsibility on, especially when the lobbying organizations that are purported to support us and where dues go, don't. Right. And I think it's important for us to talk about who is actually lobbying against the best interests of all of us. We've got to take a break. I want to remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking today with Ms. Catherine Miller. She is the author of the book we are diving into titled At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy. Okay, let's stay on the other NRA, which is the National Restaurant Association. Yeah. Because they also are involved in lobbying for or against fair wages. And several weeks ago, I interviewed a brilliant advocate, Elizabeth Henderson. She is one of the founders of the Agricultural Justice Project, and she said something that was quite insightful. She said that agriculture can't be sustainable without fair wages. And I would say that the same could be said for restaurants. Yes. I mean, listen, we haven't had an increase in the federal minimum wage since the early 1990s. And we have in the restaurant community, as does the agriculture workers, they are both systems themselves that benefit from the ability to even pay below the federal minimum wage or the state prevailing minimum wage. So for generations, restaurant labor costs have largely been underwritten by the public paying of tips. And what we have to realize about tips is that they originate out of a world of slavery, where people did not want to pay wages to either non-free or freed Black people in this country. And so they gave them change. That's what they paid them with. And that culture of tipping is the backbone of a relatively affordable restaurant community. And that has to change. And it's painful. That change is incredibly painful. It's painful for the workers. It's painful for the restaurant owners. But it is something that we're grappling with around the country. Seattle was one of the first to pass a city and state based minimum wage at 15 and above. Here, where I live in Washington, D.C., we're going to see a rise to 15 and above in a very accelerated fashion. And it's happening all over the country. And so we as customers, we as eaters and the enjoyers of all the deliciousness benefit 
from our ability to make decisions about the quality of our meal and what we're going to pay for our meal currently based off a subminimum wage. So my bill comes and it's $25 and I can tip 20%, I can tip 10%, I tip nothing, I can tip more than that. Soon we're all going to be faced with the fact that that $25 bill is going to be $32 and we're not going to have any decision other than to go to that restaurant again or not because the wage is going to have to be incorporated in the check, the tip's going to have to be incorporated in the check. And all of the necessary benefits for workers are going to have to be in that check. So I think our food's about to get more expensive in restaurants. And we're seeing that all up and down the supply chain. It's going to get more expensive in grocery stores. It's going to get more expensive in restaurants. And it's going to change the way we eat in America. Mm. Well, your book is filled with a series of chef spotlights. And you address this issue and you talk about Chef Amanda Cohen in New York City. She was one of the loudest and steadiest voices in the industry calling for changing wages, and she eliminated tipping in her restaurant. How did that go for her? I mean, for Amanda, I feel like it's going well because Amanda is one, she's at a certain price point within her restaurants. The ethos and ethics behind her restaurants are very well known to folks. So oddly, it's probably, quote unquote, fine for Amanda to be able to pay that wage. I think what we see, though, is the Amanda's, the dirt candies as her restaurant in New York, the dirt candies of the world are sort of islands unto themselves. So what she pays her workers, what customers pay to eat a dirt candy is not the norm. And so she is competing. The only place that most restaurants compete within a community is actually in wage. And so for Amanda, she was one of the loudest champions and it was something that she firmly believes in. And I think she should be an example for every restaurant around the country, but it's not the case. We're looking at tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small restaurants around the country who still live in a world where they can pay the prevailing minimum wage of their city. Some part of that minimum wage can be augmented with tips. And so it is an artificial cost of their labor. And so I I applaud Amanda and I wanted to highlight her work, but she is an island (laughs) in the restaurant industry. And there are more people that they're getting more and more of those islands. They're about to become an island chain. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you write that restaurants have this unique opportunity for non-traditional communication, which is at the core of advocacy. Yep. And I wondered then getting back to Amanda, does she find ways to explain what's going on in her restaurant with regard to no tips and why? Does she have menu education? How does some of that non-traditional communication work? Yeah, she's great because they do have menu communication. All of their servers are up to speed on what the charges are, what the bill is. When you book a table at Dirt Candy, they tell you what the cost is going to be and what that includes. She, again, she has menu education. Her staff is well-trained. She's also a public advocate. So she's often out. She herself writes op-eds and different think pieces. So one of the things that I love about restaurants is their ability to communicate in sort of non-traditional ways. So they have social media accounts where they can post things. They have the menu education, the staff education, but they're also a place where policymakers often gather and their staffs often gather, right? And so it is an ability to almost, to be a demonstration project for folks and also educate in that way. And then, you know, they are also able to invite someone on a tour of the kitchen and talk to them in that way. So restaurants are really cool platform for change because of the demonstration project of them and the different ways that they can explain what's on your plate and what's on your bill. Mm -hmm. Well, 
you have brought forth many of these spotlighted chefs. And I'm wondering, how did you find them? Oh, I, you know, that's the best part about the work that I've done over the last 10 years. So I, you know, I started working with chefs in 2012 when the James Beard Foundation got the initial funding to do the first chef's boot camp for policy and change and invited me to build that curriculum. And at the end of that three days, the chefs all sort of looked around and said, well, we want to continue this work. How do we do this? And no one had a plan. And it was sort of like one of those funny moments where everybody's head tilted in the next direction and looked at the person next to them, like down the line. And I was the last person in line. And I made a total quip and was like, I'll do it. I work for food and spent the next couple of years running around building the Chef Action Network, having the chefs that we had hosted on the first boot camp invite me to their cities to do the training for other chefs in their network. And then we were able to secure funding to do the Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change, which continues to be a program of the James Beard Foundation even today. And I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I have worked with thousands of chefs around the country. I get every day to see them at work in the kitchen and on Capitol Hill. And it's such a blessing. And so, you know, the worst part about the book for me was the constant battle over audience and also the constant fine tuning of the stories that I wanted to tell. And there are so many stories that aren't in the book. So maybe there's a book too. Yeah. Maybe there's a second book. Well, I was going to say, I think what this book has done is it has made it very clear the powerful role that chefs have. And for those of us who are eaters, who want to make a difference with our food choices, you lead us not only to restaurants where we can make a difference with our food dollars, but you also have taught me that it's possible. We don't have to reinvent the wheels. If we know somebody who is like-minded to many of these chefs, we can show them, look, this is how they did it. And this is how you can be a better advocate too. My only suggestion is to make this a fluid collection of examples and to have this ongoing source of advocacy organizations, because I think this is terrific, Catherine. I, I think you've done a great service for the future, taking us down a path of what could be. So on that line, how many chefs do you think recognize their power to change the food system? I think it's a large number, and I think it's growing. Certainly about 400 chefs went through the boot camp while I was there. And as I said, that program continues. So hopefully, you know, in another 10 years, there'll be another 800,000. But what was really amazing about the core group was that they would then invite me or others to their community to train their community. So this idea that it's exponential, you've got restaurants on every corner of every community. And so there's a lot of power and potential there. I think one of the things, and it's a thing I touch on the book is it's still a lot of work to be an advocate is not, it's not easy. And to make the choices that you want to make on a daily basis, especially within food, you're often confronted with it time in and time out. Like, should I go to this store? Should I be shop at this restaurant, this grocery store? So I think for the book, one of the things I wanted to do was lay out a framework by which anybody could take the things in the book and apply it to the issue that they care about most in their lives. So it's the framework, but it's not a one size fits all. Everybody's going to be able to do it. They're going to need to be able to prioritize. They're going to be able to make decisions about what matters. They're going to be able to map all the people that they can bring along on that ride. So I think that chefs are incredibly important to the food system because they sit at the intersection of purchasing and customers, but they don't always have a lot of time. And so 
my hope really with the book is that it lays out a framework that they can adopt on the issue that they care most about. And then I think most of us could apply that same framework. (laughs) Yes. As an advocate, I appreciated many of your insights about the hard, long work of advocacy. Well, we just have a few minutes and I have to decide whether or not to bring up one of two issues. So I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm very interested in how COVID-19 influenced our food system because it relates to supply chain issues. And then my other topic was bakers against racism. So of those two topics, which would you like to dive into? Um, you know, let's do sustainability in the supply chain. I mean, Bakers Against Racism is amazing. Everyone should get to know them. They're an anti-racist organization that fundraises and promotes bake sales all around the globe. And everybody should know their work and they're fantastic. But sustainability like is the jam, right? Right. Okay. I just want to interject one quote then from that. And that was Chef Paola Velez. She had a quote from her grandmother, which I thought was so lovely. I had to repeat it. It is to cook for somebody and to feed them is wanting them to live. How beautiful is that? All right, let's jump into sustainability then in supply chains. Of course, as a dietitian and wanting people to have access to the healthiest foods, I was very interested to see how supply chains were influenced by COVID and how local regional food systems were really the first and best responders. What was the situation for restaurants? You know, restaurants, to use the infamous word, had to pivot almost immediately. And so restaurants, because they exist in every corner of every community around the country and around the globe, really became hubs for local food systems. So you saw restaurants become grocery stores. You saw them become delivery services, emergency feeding sites. You saw them feeding the homeless in ways that they had never done before. So it was a really fascinating time from a restaurant response side to watch them figure out how they could make sure to continue to feed their community, keep their workers safe, and also deal with the bottom line of keeping restaurants financially open at a time when they couldn't necessarily be open in traditional ways. I think what we saw, however, was some big pressures on sustainability issues, sustainability decisions and also supply chain. And I'm not sure there's a person who's interested in food who will ever forget the lines of cars going into emergency feeding centers and food pantries during those first months and first year of the pandemic. I don't think many of us will forget the deaths of food workers, whether they were in the meat processing facilities or in the fields because they were frontline workers. And I also don't think many of us who work in food will ever forget that our restaurant workers were frontline workers at that time. So I saw a lot of it. and But the sustainability piece is also interesting because there were a lot of strides being made related to more sustainable sourcing, more local sourcing, more sustainable options in terms of packaging and other pieces that were being done during in the restaurant industry pre-COVID. And a lot of them almost immediately went out the window because of time and convenience and availability. So that was another pressure on the system. Catherine, this is a fascinating book. It provides a wonderful advocacy organization list for anybody who's interested in diving into this more. And you've got some great chefs that you've identified. So thank you for this. 
We've got to close. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Catherine Miller. She is the author of the book we've been discussing today, titled At the Table, The Chef's Guide to Advocacy, published by Island Press. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. And if people want to learn more, they can go to www.table81.com. And there'll be more information about the book and where to find resources. Thank you so much. 